0: hey welcome back to the Ascent Church podcast we have a great episode for you so let's get to it Good morning ascent Good morning. Morning. who's excited to be with the church this morning <laughs> All right like it. I'm excited. Uh, For those of you who have been participating, this is day 21 of our prayer and fasting, which means as soon as I finish this service, I'm going to be cracking open a Diet Coke and then another one and another one and another one. And uh, I don't know how much aspartame is bad for you, but I'm going to try to find out today (laughs) because I have really missed some Diet Coke. And so it's going to be a great sermon. It might even be a short sermon uh, because the whole time I'm going to be thinking about Diet Coke. But we are in part four of our series, New Normal, and uh, really it's part of a, a larger series throughout the Gospel of Mark, and we call the series New Normal. It's kind of a play on words of what's going on in our society, where everybody is saying because something has happened, we now live differently. And the reason we call the series that is because when Jesus came, he said the power of God's kingdom is now here. That for a lot of my childhood growing up, I thought heaven and God was a place far away that I was supposed to go one day. And Jesus says, actually, heaven and God came to earth. That my goal as a pastor is not to get you into heaven, but it's to get heaven into you. Now, of course, that includes what happens after you die. Of course, that includes that there's something coming after this life. But I want you to understand right now, Jesus' kingdom power is available to those who follow him. And if we are to live in light of God's kingdom, there is a new normal. That the world's values go this way, and now as Christians, our values are turned upside down. And the world looks at us, and they don't fully understand what's going on. And Jesus says, this is not easy. He says, if you want to follow in my kingdom, and you should want to, because that's where real life is. You're going to experience salvation, find peace, no purpose, and live fulfilled. It's by following me. But if you want to experience those things, you're going to have to die to yourself. It's going to cost you something greatly. The world's going to look at you like you're crazy, because you're living in a different storyline. You see, we we all live and we all decide what is right and wrong based upon the narratives that we live in. So, for example, if I told you tonight that a masked man was going to come into your house, break through your window, and pull you out by force, you'd probably say, that doesn't sound good, Blake. But if I told you the narrative was that actually tonight your house is going to be on fire and the masked man breaking through your window and pulling you out by force is a firefighter, the whole story changes, doesn't it? Because you look at that man differently based upon the narrative that is around it. And Jesus says, the world is living in a narrative that says this life is all that matters, that you are what matters most, that your goal in this life should be to fulfill and have the most pleasure you can possibly have. And Jesus says, no, actually, this life is not all that there is, that there is something greater and bigger going on. And you're going to look a little bit silly to people because you're living for something that might not even bear fruit in this lifetime. That's why the apostle Paul in the New Testament says that we are to be most pitied as Christians if there is no resurrection. Because we wasted it. We punted our life, and we wasted our life. We should have lived like the pagans, Paul says, partying and drinking and fulfilling every pleasure and every whim we had in our lives. And yet, Paul says, but we do believe in the resurrection. We do believe in that hope. And yes, we find joy in this life, greater joy than you can ever imagine. We get Jesus, which is this amazing thing, but it also means we're going to have to die to ourselves and suffer in some ways that the world would think, are ridiculous, are archaic, that don't really make sense. And as we come into this text, I am aware that it is a very hard text for a lot of people who are listening. I am aware that divorce has caused a lot of pain for a lot of people. I am aware that for some of you, these words are very offensive. But I want you to be sure and know that Jesus loves you. I love you. And the reason I teach through books of the Bible like this is because with everything in my soul right now, I want to skip this section of scripture. And yet what I think is best for us to do, friends, is to live in reality of what Jesus actually says. To not try to paint the Jesus that's okay for our culture, because Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus comes forth and he says things very clearly. I, uh, I'm a hypochondriac. I don't know if you guys know anybody like this, um, but like I, I get a little cough, and next thing I know, I think I'm dying of some rare form of lung disease, uh or like you know my my big toe hurts and i'm like oh my gosh i'm you know i've got some kind of circulation problem and my toe's going to fall off uh and what's interesting about my hypochondriac is it doesn't drive me to the doctor it usually drives me away cuz i'm also one of those people that think if the doctor doesn't say what it is and it doesn't actually exist i don't know if you guys know anybody like this but they just want to avoid reality at all costs and yet really truly the best thing we can do is go to a doctor and have him tell us the truth Because once we know the truth, then we can begin to fix what's going on. See, it's not very nice for a doctor to tell you you have cancer. But the doctor's not doing his job if he doesn't tell you that you have cancer. In fact, when the doctor tells you that, it's going to ruin your entire day. It's going to ruin your family's week. And yet if the doctor doesn't tell you that, he's a bad doctor. And Jesus comes and he says, You can deal in this false narrative of whatever you want to define marriage as, But here's the reality from the one who created it. So we're going to jump in. And today, honestly, guys, I cannot cover everything in here in a 30 minute sermon. Uh, Let's be honest, 45 minute sermon. Uh, I never go 30 minutes. Uh, But I I, I just I can't. I, I found four different sermons, four different things I could talk on on this message. And so what I want you to know is I'm not I'm not brushing over things on purpose. And if you have any questions, please ask me questions. I'll try to answer some of the common questions, but I'm going to miss some. I'm going to go over things way too fast. And I've decided to focus on those of us who are already married. I've decided to focus on what God would say for those of us who are pre-divorce. And I want you to know if you have been divorced and you're remarried, uh, Jesus would not tell you to divorce that spouse and go to another, go back to your old one. That's not what he's saying at all. Jesus would say, this marriage has been a nude in Christ, and what you need to do in this marriage is what you should have done in your first marriage. I think that's the exact words Jesus would say if you were standing here with us today. That there is grace, and I pray that you feel grace and not condemnation, as I preach this message. So I'm going to pray. Uh, and but before I do that, I have just a couple pastoral announcements. Uh, I want to reiterate what Tim said about the small groups, uh, that sheet of paper you have is there for you to get connected. Uh, and I'm going to be match.com. So that's why I want you to tell me uh, what best time it is for you and what day of the week works best for you so that we can make sure we have groups that, that work for you guys. Um, I, I do five in the morning groups sometimes and people look at me like I am not getting up at five in the morning ever. And so I want to help you guys. You want a lunch group? You want an evening group? Uh, however many groups we have, we'll, we'll try to work it out so you can be with people. Because truly, people is where you find peace. That this is not this thirty minute message is not going to be enough. You need brothers, you need sisters in your life who can be there to call you out when you're going down a wrong pathway. You need people who can encourage you when you're down. You need people to help you see that your perspective is limited. In Proverbs it says, "Iron sharpens iron." So there's got to be some tension sometimes. We've got to make each other sharper, stronger, better together. And it only happens in community. So I want to encourage all of you. My goal is to have at least 50 people in some sort of DNA group. And on the back side of it, there's some specialty groups you can check off, like Financial Peace University, which is one I would recommend everybody go through. Uh, a lot of our stress comes from finances. That group is a wonderful group to be a part of. Uh, we're planning on starting it in March. If you want to be a part of that one, check it off. There's also interest for marriage group or a new faith group. Whatever it is, you can check it off. And then at the bottom, there's something really scary, which says lead a DNA group. And I know some of you are like, I'm never doing that. Nope, not going to do it. Uh, But really, it's not as scary as it sounds. If you can make coffee and facilitate people and work through questions that are on the back of your worship guide every week, you can lead a DNA group. Uh, It's not near as uh, impressive as one might think. I know you think, Pastor Blake's supposed to lead the groups because he knows about the Bible. It doesn't take that all it takes is the holy spirit and you creating an environment where you can talk with other sisters or other men and uh, i will come alongside you and i'll help you in any way possible and i think some of you are feeling called to lead a dna group or you're feeling called to take that next step in your faith or maybe you feel stagnant in your faith and i would tell you leading a dna group is one way to start praying a lot more because you have people that rely upon you and so i would encourage you guys to sign that out if you want to one more thing is uh, that we're going to have baptisms in two weeks we have three or four people signed up already And if you have made Jesus the center of your life, I would love to baptize you as a symbol of what Jesus has done. Uh, It's an immersion into your new identity, your new life in Christ. And it's more than just a symbol because it's also an ordinance, which means Jesus told us to do this. He says, obey me and be baptized. It's the very first thing we do as Christians is to be baptized into the family of God. So if you haven't done that since you made Jesus your Savior, I would encourage you to do that. And you can let me know on your Connect card. Just check off. I want to be baptized and I'll get with you. Now, that's all for the commercials. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to try not to make everybody mad in this room. All right. Father God, I need you. I really, really need you. Uh, Jesus, you, you love these people. Uh, you hate divorce, but you don't hate those who have been divorced. You hate divorce for the reason we all do, because it breaks apart families. It hurts children. It causes wounds. Lord, it's, it's not right. It's broken. And we all know that. We all would love to live in a world where love never died out, where there was never a reason for people to have to walk away from one another. And yet, Lord, we live in a world where it happens because we're all selfish to one degree or another. Lord, we ask that you would soften our hearts. We ask that you would strengthen our marriages. Lord, and I ask that you'd give us ears to hear. Lord, that we would have grace with the guy on the stage with the microphone because he's a sinner, just like everybody else. And uh, Lord, I just pray that people leave here feeling built up and not beat up. They leave here feeling your love and your grace, not the condemnation that comes not from you, because in you there is no condemnation. There is no shame. There is no guilt. You bore that for us, for those of us who trust in you. Lord Jesus, we love you. We praise you. Amen. I am uh, just going to walk directly through the words of Jesus. I'm going to let him speak uh, for himself. So if you ever find yourself getting offended, just take it up with Jesus. Um, and, and really, this is where the rubber meets the road. I love how Jesus does this uh, because we just saw in Mark 8, to be a Christian fundamentally means you have Jesus in the center of your life, which means as, as we are born, we have ourselves in the center of our lives. I decide what's best with my money. I decide what I believe, what I don't believe. I decide my relationships. I decide what's best for me. And to be a Christian means I'm going to pull myself out of that center and I'm going to put Jesus there. And I'm not always going to understand it. It's not always going to feel good. But I believe in this guy enough to live as though I believe in him. And I'm going to trust him in all of these different areas. And Jesus says, okay, that sounds cute in the things that you enjoy. But let me just attack the things that nobody likes. And that's what we find here. So as we jump into verse 1, it says, He, he being Jesus, set out from there and went to the region of Judea across the Jordan. Most translations say beyond the Jordan. I think that's really important because we learn in Mark 1 that the Jordan represents more than just a geographic area. It actually represents the ministry of John the Baptist, who came uh, before Jesus to prepare the way of Jesus. Jesus was baptized into the Jordan. And we're really going to see as we get closer and closer to the cross, Jesus is going to do what John the Baptist never could do. That's why John the Baptist said there's one coming that is greater than I. We're going beyond the Jordan. Then crowds converged on him again. And as was his customs, he taught them again. Now, Jesus does the reverse of what churches do today, does the reverse of what I do, if I'm being honest with you. Jesus doesn't try to attract a crowd. He's just so attractive that crowds come to him. Uh, And then he tells them things that offends them all radically. Uh, I do the exact opposite. I have to try to attract a crowd, and then I'm scared to offend you guys because I don't want you to leave. But Jesus says, look, I I I see you crowd. I know you're around me. And I'm attractive to you because I can heal you. I'm attractive to you because I offer a way of peace that you see. But I don't think you guys are fully understanding the cost that is involved. See, Jesus is the opposite of a salesman. A salesman tries to maximize the good things about something and minimize or hide the bad things so that you buy the thing and then later on you find out all the faults in it. Jesus says, no, you guys are just focusing on the benefits. I want you to count the cost of what it means to follow me. I want you guys to really consider what's going on here and see if you desire this thing or you desire me more. And so Jesus goes to the three topics that are offensive in today's culture because they've been offensive in every single culture throughout all of history. Uh, When I first got into ministry, I had a pastor tell me uh, what a pastor told him uh, before he got into ministry. He said, "Uh, Blake, there are three things that will take a pastor out of ministry. He said, you look around the room, room pastors, uh, the ones you're with when you start will generally not be there. And there's three reasons why. It's either sex, money, or power. So what's yours? I was like, oh, gosh, we're just going straight to the heart of the matter. But I think, actually, that goes beyond just pastoral ministry. That's life. Like, if you're going to follow Jesus, it's going to be one of those three rubs that keep you from truly submitting your life to him. For some of us, it's our sexuality, our relationships, our marriages. I just I can't follow Jesus if that's what he calls me to do. For others of us, it's money. Like, if Jesus wants my money, then I just can't do it. We're going to see that next week. Or for others of us, it's power slash politics, right? Like, I want to use power the way I want to use it. I want to pursue these things for my benefit. And Jesus says that's not how it works in my kingdom. So I'm really grateful for Jesus that he puts these four topics together for a guy like me. Last week, we preached on the wrath of God. This week, I, I talk about divorce. Next week, we're talking about money. And then we're talking about power and politics. So if there's any of you left at the end of these four weeks, God bless you. It's like, thank you, God. Thank you. And by the way, this is why I know the New Testament wasn't made up. Because if if you're trying to make up a religion, this is not the way to do it, right? Like you're trying to get somebody to die for something. You tell them you're going to get rich. There's going to be more sexual pleasure for you. There's going to be more power for you. And Jesus says you're going to have less power. You're not going to have control over your own desires. And your money is all mine for my kingdom's sake. So come with me. Okay. All right. Verse 2. Some Pharisees came to test him. And they're going to keep testing him as we get closer and closer to the cross. Eventually, they will try and kill him. If you've ever wondered why people wanted to kill Jesus, you're about to find out. Some Pharisees came to test him, asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? They're trying to trap Jesus in this question. And Jesus, being the master that he is, responds to their question with a question. He replied to them, what did Moses command you? In the Torah, in the Old Testament, what, what is the rule that God laid out for you? And they said, well, Moses presented us to write divorce papers. I don't know. They don't have that accent. Uh, I'm really the pastor here, if you're wondering. There's not another one coming next week. They said, Moses presented us to write divorce papers and send her away. And they're right. If you go to Deuteronomy chapter 24, uh, Moses said that if your wife doesn't please you, you can send her away. Uh, And it looks like a pretty harsh verse on on women, but it was actually in the time it was protection for women because before this, men could literally just kick out women out to the curb uh, without any protection at all. And in that society, if you didn't have a husband, you didn't have an income. Uh, there was no work for women to do like we are blessed to have in our culture. And so Moses, uh, inspired by the Holy Spirit, says, if you're going to send your wife away, you have to give her a certificate and she has to be allowed to remarry and you have to send and provide for her as she goes out, which was an amazing advancement. So they answer Jesus correctly. And then Jesus says this, it says, but Jesus told them he wrote this command for you because of the hardness of your hearts, that that language, there, hardness of your hearts is is stubborn, slow to learn, selfish. Because you are slow to learn, stubborn, and selfish. He gave you that command. And then he says this. He says, You want to talk about Moses? That's Deuteronomy. Let's talk about the beginning. Moses also wrote Genesis verse six. It says, But the beginning of creation, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason a man will leave his father and mother. And the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one, that word there is is mankind, let mankind not separate. In other words, what God created, man has no right to come in and divide it up. And the reason why this is offensive to us is because we live in a narrative in which the world says marriage is primarily about mutual fulfillment. That a good marriage is where both people are fulfilled. Both people are being made better by the marriage. Both people are having their desires reasonably met within the marriage. And Jesus would say, that might be a great byproduct of marriage, but that's not the main point of marriage in my kingdom. In my kingdom, marriage was created to tell something about the character of God to the world. Look at me, this is the main point of the message. You can fall asleep after this. Marriage, married, married friends, married friends on the verge of divorce, Marriage is not about you. It's about God. If you are a Christian, I want to be very clear today. I'm not talking to non-Christians. I think it's ridiculous when Christians try to hold non-Christians to a Christian standard. I'm talking to those of you who put Jesus at the center of your life and you want to follow him and live within his story. Your marriage is not about you. It's about the God of this universe. And we find out in Ephesians what marriage is all about. It is a picture to the outside world of how God loves his church. That Jesus is the groom and the church is the bride. And by the way I love Taylor and the way Taylor loves me, you should be able to see how the church is to love Jesus and how Jesus loves the church. And when we don't love each other that way, you know what we are doing? We are telling a lie about God. That's serious business. This is why Jesus takes it so serious. This is why we must desire Jesus more than even our marital satisfaction. One of my mentors uh, his uh, i 've told you guys about this many times. His wife recently went to heaven with jesus um, is with Jesus anyways rather and uh, but before that i mean he he loved her for years and years and years as her health declined uh, and he told me uh, a story about a guy who came up to him uh, after he had kind of shared about his wife 's struggle, and the guy said, "Hey, my wife has m s two so I totally understand your struggle and my friend started asking him questions uh, about his, uh, his wife, and he noticed there was another woman standing there, and he said, oh, this is my new wife. I, I, I put that wife in the nursing home, and I divorced her. Uh, you understand, because of medical reasons. And he said, it took everything in him to not yell at this guy, because he said, we are not the same. You do not understand my struggle, because my wife still lives in my home. I have to deny myself daily as a 38, 39, 40, 41-year-old man who has to put his love for Jesus, his duty to love his wife as Christ loved the church above his own sexual desires. Now you tell me which one is a better picture of the church. Which one do you want Jesus to love you like more? You want Jesus only to love you when you're able to fulfill your duties? I don't. Because I I miss three out of five days during the week. Like where I, I, I completely blow it, I feel like. Where I walk by the person I'm supposed to stop and love. Right? don't read my Bible and feel myself in the presence of God at all times. Where I'm not praying for every need. Where I'm trying to be in control. Where I'm messing up, I'm missing the mark over and over and over and over again. If Jesus only loved me to where I fulfilled him, it wouldn't be much of a relationship. But when you look at the way Stephen, I wasn't trying to say his name, but it just slipped out. Don't tell anybody. When my mentor, we look at the way he loves his wife, the way he loved his wife, I see a beautiful picture of the way I hope Christ loves the church. That even in my weakest moment, when I can't even wash myself, he loves me and he serves me. This is the image we see of Jesus on the cross, is it not? As literally, the people he is dying for spit in his face and mock him. With the power of God at his fingertips, he says, Lord, forgive them, they know not what they do. Friends, does your marriage paint a picture of that? But does your marriage paint a picture of what the world would say is important? I'm not getting what I deserve, so I'm going to stonewall my husband. I'm not getting what I deserve, so I'm not going to help my wife with any of the chores around the house because that's her job. Can you imagine how different our marriages would be if we lived this way? Like our arguments would be over who opened the door for who. No, you go first. No, you go first. No, I love you more. No, I want to serve you more. How beautiful would it be if we actually lived in this narrative? And the ironic thing is, is you actually didn't begin to find fulfillment when you live that way in your marriage. Jesus says it's bigger than you. Verse 8, verse 10, rather, as we keep moving on, says when they were in the house again. So the Pharisees, they're done. They got their answer. And uh, Jesus is moving on. But the, the, uh, the disciples... Uh, are like wait a minute we got to go back to that that was a hard word you just said we just want to kind of clarify some stuff jesus uh because we think he said that we're not allowed to get a divorce but i mean come on uh you didn't really mean that did you so they questioned him about this matter and he said to them whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her verse 12 also if she divorces her husband and marries another she commits adultery now, what I love about Jesus is he doesn't provide all the, all the asterisks that I did for us before we go. He just leaves it there. He's like, that's what it is. All right, moving on. Like, Wait just a minute, Jesus. How can you just put something out there like that? But I, I think what Jesus is doing here is actually uh, really powerful. For one, in verse 12, where he says, also, if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. He has just raised the status of women. Because in the Old Testament, women were not allowed to divorce their husbands. It was the husband who had the only right to walk away from the wife. It was not the other way around. And even in Roman culture, this was not allowed. So Jesus just drops a bombshell on him by saying a woman has the right, just like a man has the right, to divorce his wife. She has the right to divorce her husband. Now he says, but she shouldn't do it. To which we say, Jesus, have you seen some of the marriages? And look, I I know. I know because I've been in counseling with people where it's just horrific. Or the husband just doesn't even want to try in the marriage. Or or the wife is just completely separated from the husband. And and it feels like it's one sided. and there's only one side putting forth effort. And man, with everything in me, if their goal is fulfillment, they need to get out of that. And yet they want to honor God. So how could they do that? And why would Jesus raise the standard of what Moses said? I thought he came to give grace. But this is raising the standard. And it all goes back to verse 1. Beyond The Jordan. Because if you remember what Jesus came to do, it was not to simply abolish the law, but it was to give us the desire to fulfill the law. That John the Baptist said, There's one coming that's greater than me. I baptize you with water, but one is coming that will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Which we're like, what does that mean? We supposed to talk in tongues and stuff? And and really it's it's a callback to Ezekiel chapter 36, a prophecy about Jesus before he comes. I want to read it for you. Verses twenty five through twenty seven. I will also sprinkle clean water on you. I'll baptize you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and all your idols. By the way, the root of this is having sexual fulfillment or marital fulfillment as an idol. It becomes not a gift, but a God. Verse 26, I will give you a, look at this, a new heart, put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone. What was the cause of all this? Hard heartedness. And what will you replace it with, Jesus, and give you a heart of flesh? And I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. See, what Jesus promises us is that he will help our ought to become our want to. It's a desire change within us. Not that you don't desire fulfillment. That's a natural desire that you would have, but that you would actually desire following Jesus and knowing Jesus and loving Jesus even more than whatever desire you might have out of your marriage. And this is a truly beautiful thing. See, the law is never enough. If we don't have desire, the law is just pointless. And case in point, how many of you sped? Well, you probably didn't speed on the way here today because you, you were slick, but how many of you speed normally on a road? Yeah, and the rest of you are liars. Look around. Got the liars. Because if you're anything like me, I, you know, I give myself an allowance. I'm like, yeah, 70 miles an hour, 72, 73. And then how many of you know the feeling when you see a cop up over the hill? I mean, it's just like your heart drops. <gasps> and then you drive kind of, kind of slow for a while. Or worse yet, when you're passing a cop and they flash their lights at you. I mean, it's just like, oh. And then you're going like 64 miles an hour for what, five, five miles? And it's like, okay, I think I'm good. And gradually we speed back up. Because that's the effect of the law. It only works when there's judgment. But when you desire to do something, you don't have to be told to do it. See, if I I, I desire Diet Coke, I can drink it all day long. And I will after this message. (laughs) Because desire doesn't have to be forced. And Jesus says, I'm coming to give my people a desire to serve me and love me that I want above all else to reflect the goodness of God to the world. To know God greater. There's a great writer named Sam Alberry. He's he's attracted to men. He's been that way for the beginning of his life. And uh, he's celibate. He's chosen celibacy. And he says he has a lot of gay friends um, who have a really hard time coming to Christ because of this. And he wrote a great book. I would encourage you to read it if it's something that you question or wonder about. Um, It's called Is God Anti-Gay? And really for a lot of us in the church, we think God's like homophobic. Uh, and Sam tries to tell his friends, no, God loves us. It's just marriage isn't about us. It's about representing to the world what's going on. And so he says that he has all these friends and he feels like oftentimes the church uh, does a really bad job of saying what you can't do, but they don't really present the good part of it. Like Sam says, the, the, the thing I get in Christ Jesus, that the way I have to pursue him and deny myself daily, the closeness I have with Jesus, the brothers and sisters I have in community is far better than any kind of satisfaction I would get out of a relationship. And he said, I know it's not for everybody. And he said, I know the church has done a really bad job. And we have, by the way, we're a bunch of hypocrites. We yell at people for homosexuality while we live with our girlfriends. And he says, but the point of it is not that you have to give up something. The point of it, yes, that's a part of it. We all do, by the way. Uh, You have to give up your lustful thoughts, straight man, uh, which is impossible. You are just as much a sinner, just as much an adulterer as anybody who's living any other kind of lifestyle. The point is, though, the reason why we pursue it is because we get more Jesus. There's greater joy. There's greater fulfillment for those who would pursue life in Jesus Christ. And so Jesus is trying to get this point across to his disciples. And here's where I'll I'll start landing the the ship uh, for those of us who are in marriage. And for those of us who are considering marriage— uh, marriage is a good gift, and it is a terrible God. I love what happens in the Gospel of Matthew. There's four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They all tell the story of Jesus from different angles, and they choose to include different things. And Matthew in this story uh, includes uh, the disciples' uh, reaction to this. It says, Jesus' disciples objected. If those are the terms of marriage, we haven't got a chance. Why get married? But Jesus said, and look at this, friend, not everyone is mature enough to live a married life it requires a certain aptitude and grace marriage isn't for everyone some from birth never give marriage a thought others never get asked or accepted and some decide not to marry for kingdom reasons but if you are capable of, look at, look at this if you are capable of growing into the largeness of marriage do it see marriage is not for everybody i wish somebody had told me this when i was a kid for us, it was always like, you know, wait till you get married because that's God's greatest gift. And it is a, a wonderful gift, but it's not for everybody. It's for those who are mature enough to deny themselves. Emotional maturity is realizing the world doesn't revolve around you. Emotional maturity is realizing you can find fulfillment in yourself through Christ Jesus. And Jesus says, if you are looking for somebody else to fill the holes that only I can fill, you're going to be sorely disappointed in marriage. And in fact, maybe you shouldn't even be married. Because it's only for those who can grow into the largeness of it. See, the the world presents a picture of marriage. It's supposed to be a fairy tale. That that little fuzzy feeling you get for the person, you're supposed to feel that 15 years later, which is scientifically impossible. Like literally there are endorphins in your head that are going off that do not go off after the second year. That's not to say you can't have passion for your loved one or love them or still get fuzzies from time to time. But I promise you, if you're married and you see some things about the person, like you see the way they they put the, 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 the knives in the dishwasher with the knife up so it stabs you. You don't feel the fuzzies anymore. My wife's not in here, so keep that between us, please. This happened to me last week. It's about pursuing God together. It's a much deeper love. Your definition of sexy changes. Uh, My wife's going to kill me, but (laughs) why not? We already started. Uh, you guys are going to judge me real heavily here, but uh, growing up, I never did laundry. Uh, my mom always did the laundry for me, I know. Uh, and then you know, I left and I moved in with my grandma Wendy. Everybody knows Miss Wendy. She, don't, she didn't let me touch anything. She did all my laundry, like twice a day, I think. She'd take the clean clothes and wash them again, you know? Uh, and so I got married and I said, Taylor, I will do the dishes if, uh, if you will do the laundry. That was our deal. She signed up for it, we were good. Uh, along the way, I stopped doing the dishes as much And she kept doing the laundry And uh, so this year, I was really convicted I was like, I need to serve my wife in this way And uh, a couple of weeks ago I saw the thing And the dryer was done I thought I could figure this out Open the dryer up And, uh, oh, I got it first though I gotta tell you about the first time I tried to do laundry And this is why Taylor agreed with me uh, I put too much soap in the, in the thing <laughs> And then I left And I came home And uh, it was like a foam party in our apartment <laughs> So Taylor said, don't ever touch this again. And I didn't know you weren't supposed to dry stuff up with white towels. So I ruined a whole bunch of our towels. It was a bad deal. Anyways, so I see the dryer. I'm like, this is safe. And I take it to the room and I put it down there. And I'm like, I don't even know where to begin, but they're just going to start folding stuff. And then Taylor came around the corner and she looked at me and she said, what are you doing? And I said, could you please teach me how to fold laundry? And she said, that's the sexiest thing you've ever said to me. <laughs> well, I would have said that a long time ago if I knew that.
1: I didn't know it was that easy
0: as your definition and a true marriage changes. It's about serving one another. And friends, when we do that, we paint a picture of who Jesus is. Now, how can we do this? This is so hard. It's so difficult. And I think that the way we can do it, and Molly, if you want to go ahead and come back up, starts in, in, uh, at the end, verse 13. Says, people were bringing little children to him in order that he might touch them. But the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the little children come to me. Don't stop them, because the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Look at me, friends. If there is an ounce of self-sufficiency in you, if there is an ounce of you that says, I think I can do life without Jesus in your heart, this will not work because you will walk away from it. We have to come to Jesus like an infant. Jesus, you are the only way to life for me. That without you, I am hopeless. And I realize some of us are not there. We're not at that point. I would pray that God would allow you to hit bottom so that you would get to that point because that's when true life begins. But it's coming to our marriage and saying, God, this thing is broken and every ounce of my heart wants to walk away. But if this is true, I'm going to depend upon you and I'm going to trust you're going to do what I cannot do. Childlike faith, I think looks like Hudson Taylor. He was uh, founder of a, a mission in China and in the closing months of his life. He said to a friend, I quote, I am so weak. I can't read my Bible. I can't even pray. I can only lie still in God's arms like a little child and trust. That's a beautiful picture of childlike faith. And here's what Jesus promises to those of us who come to him in that way. Look at the end, verse 16. After taking them in his arms, he laid his hands on them and he blessed them. How does he bless us? I think there's three ways. Number one, he died for your sexual brokenness. The the word sin means to miss the mark. See, sexual sin doesn't necessarily mean you're evil or you're awful. It just means God's design is here and you miss the mark. It's like you can brush your teeth with a hammer, but you're not doing it right. There's more effective ways to do it. You're not evil. You're just kind of missing the design of what the thing was supposed to do. And Jesus comes and he dies for that brokenness. There is no condemnation. And you might be sitting here today going, oh, Blake, I blew it. Would God ever accept me? Yes. Especially you. There's a story in John chapter four where a woman who's been married four times and she's on her fifth husband comes to Jesus Jesus says, where's your husband? And she says, he's not here. Jesus says, yeah, I know you've had five of them. But he doesn't condemn her. He offers her living water. He says, you are my daughter. Look at me. I don't know what sexual brokenness you struggle with, even right now in this moment. But Jesus wants to say to you, you are my son and you are my daughter. You can come to him as you are. He blesses us with his forgiveness. Number two, he blesses us to give us the power to do what we cannot do on our own. He gives us the tools we need to be able to depend upon him when it feels like there's nothing else we can do. He does this through his Holy Spirit, but friends, look, he does it through the church. There's a reason I started by talking about small groups, because this will not work alone. If you try to will yourself to a good marriage, if you try to will yourself out of some kind of sexual brokenness, you will fail over and over and over and over and over again. The only way we find healing is in the community of God's people to take off the mask. things are not working the way they should be working. I put on a smile. Everybody thinks I'm so beautiful. But on the inside, I am broken. My marriage is broken. And it's when we admit that brokenness to one another, we can then actually begin to find healing. And here's the last way Jesus blesses us. He promises you one day for all of eternity, you will have wholeness. That in this lifetime, some of us have to suffer in ways others of us don't. My, My brother, Stephen, had to suffer in a way, I pray, that none of us have to. And yet, you know what I know? When he is with Jesus Christ, when he's face to face with his Savior, all of that will melt away. When he gets to see Christy again, and her wholeness and her beauty, all of it will be worth it to him. I don't fully understand what I just said, but I believe it to be true. Because Jesus told me that was the way it was going to be. And I want you to know, whatever you're struggling in right now, it is not in vain, my friends. God sees you, and one day it will all be worth it when you see him face to face. I want to pray for us. Father, this is a hard message it, uh, it it points out to me what it means to die to self to follow you because everything in me wants to pursue my happiness and my joy above all else and you tell me that there is happiness and there is joy, but it cannot be pursued above obeying you cannot be pursued over my desire for you and Jesus I love you so deeply I love you more than anything in this world and yet sometimes what I just said doesn't seem to be true in my heart and I know the same is true for many people in this room right now who see a guy talking on stage and making it look really easy but the guy on stage doesn't have to go home and and deal with it Lord but what I know is you go home with them. That if they trust in you, your spirit is with them. That there is no condemnation, there is grace and there is community and there is hope. Lord, I pray that we would walk out of this place feeling encouraged and built up. I pray for healing in our marriages. Right now, if you would, with your eyes closed and head bowed, I want you to take just about 20 seconds. Say, Holy Spirit, what are you saying to me through this message? And listen. Listen. Thanks for tuning in to the Ascent Church podcast. You can check in with us on social media at My Ascent Church. New episodes each week. Thanks.